Chapter Twelve of the Tribulations of a Chinaman in China. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds. The Tribulations of a Chinaman in China by Jules Verne, translated by Virginia Champlin. Chapter Twelve. In which Kin Fo his two acolytes, and his valet, start on an adventure. Who is the traveller who is seen hastening over the principal water or carriage routes, and up the canals and rivers of the celestial empire? He goes on and on, not knowing at evening where he will be the next day. He passes through cities without seeing them, and stops at hotels or inns only to catch a few hours' sleep, and at restaurants to take a hasty meal. Money does not stay in his hand, for he throws it around to facilitate his progress. It is not a merchant or on business. It is not a Mandarin, whom the minister has charged with some important mission, an artist in search of the beauties of nature, a savant whose tastes lead him to seek ancient documents stored in the temples of bonzes or lamas in old China, Neither is it a student going to the pagoda of examination to get his university degrees, nor a priest of Buddha going about the country to inspect the small rural altars erected among the roots of the sacred banyan, nor a pilgrim going to fulfill some vow at one of the five holy mountains of the celestial empire. It is the pretended Ki Nan accompanied by Craig Fry, ever active and ready, followed by Sun, who was more and more weary and reluctant. It is Kin Fo, in the odd mood which leads him to fly from, and at the same time to seek, the undiscoverable Wang. It is the patron of the centenary, who only seeks, in this incessant going and coming, forgetfulness of his situation, and perhaps a guarantee against the invisible dangers by which he is menaced. The best marksman stands a chance of missing a target in motion, and Kin Fo wishes to be this target, which never ceases to move. The travelers had taken at Nankin one of the fast American steamboats, the vast floating hotels which sail on the Blue River. Sixty hours afterwards they landed at Rankio, without even having admired that odd-looking rock, the little orphan, which rises up in the middle of the current of the Yangtze Kian, where a temple made use of by the bonzes boldly crowns the summit. At Rankio, situated at the confluence of Blue River and its important tributary, the Rankian, the wandering Kin Fo stopped only half a day. There again souvenirs of the Taiping were found in irreparable ruin. But neither in this commercial city, which, to tell the truth, is only an annexation of the prefecture Ranyang Fo, built on the right shore of the tributary stream, nor at the Ochang Fo, the capital of the province of Ropei, on the right shore of the stream did the uncapturable Wang leave any trace of his passage. But there were plenty of those terrible letters which Kin Fo had found at Nankin on the tomb of the crowned bonds. 
If Craig and Fry had ever hoped that on this journey through China they would carry away any idea of its customs, or acquire any knowledge of its cities, they were soon undeceived. They would not have had time to take notes, and their impressions would have been reduced to a few names of cities and townships, or to the days of the month. But they were neither curious nor talkative. Indeed, they hardly ever spoke. Of what use would it have been? What Craig thought? Fry thought also. It would have been only a monologue. Therefore they, like their patron, did not notice that double appearance common to the majority of Chinese cities, which are dead within and full of life in their suburbs. At Rankiao they barely perceived the European quarters, with its broad rectangular streets and elegant houses, and its promenade, shaded by tall trees, which skirts the shore of the Blue River. They had eyes to see only one man, and that man remained invisible. The steamboat, owing to the tide which raised the waters of the Rankian, could ascend this tributary for 130 leagues more, as far as Lao Rokyo. Kin Fo was not the man to abandon this style of locomotion, which pleased him. On the contrary, he expected to go to the point where the Rankian would cease to be navigable. Beyond that, he would consider. Craig and Fry would have asked nothing better than to have had this kind of navigation the whole course of the journey, for their surveillance was easier on board a boat, and the dangers were less imminent. Later, on the routes through the provinces of central China, which were less safe, it would be quite different. As for Sion, this steamboat life pleased him very well, for he did not have to walk or do anything, and left his master to the good offices of Craig Fry. All he thought of was to take a nap in his corner after having breakfasted, dined, and supped conscientiously. For the cooking was good. A change of food on board the boat a few days later would have indicated to anyone but this ignorant fellow that a change of latitude had taken place in the geographical situation of the travelers. For, during the meals, wheat was suddenly substituted for rice in the form of unleavened bread, which was quite agreeable to the taste when eaten fresh from the oven. Sion, as a true Chinaman of the South, grieved for his daily rice. He managed his little chopsticks with so much skill when he dropped the kernels from the cup into his vast mouth and absorbed such quantities of them. Than rice and tea, what is more desirable by a true son of heaven? The steamboat, ascending the course of the Ran Ken, had just entered the wheat region, where the elevation of the country becomes more marked. On the horizon are outlined several mountains, crowned with fortifications which were built under the ancient dynasty of the Ming. The artificial banks, which hold the waters of the river, give way to low shores, enlarging its bed at the expense of its depth. The government of Guanlo Fao now appeared. Kin Fo did not go on shore during the few hours required to put the fuel on board in the presence of the custom-house boats. What was he going to do in that city, which he cared so little to see? He had but one desire, since he no longer found a trace of the philosopher, 
and that was to travel farther still into the interior of central China, where, if he did not catch Wang, Wang would not catch him. After Guanlo Fao came two cities built opposite one another, the commercial city of Fanqing on the left shore, and the government of Xiangyangfo on the right, the first being a suburb full of the stir of people and the bustle of business, the second the residence of the authorities, and more dead than alive. And after Fanqing and Ranqian, ascending directly to the north at a sharp angle, was still navigable as far as the Lao Kyo, but the water was not deep enough for the steamboat to go further. On leaving this last stopping place, the conditions of the journey were changed. One was obliged to abandon the water courses, those walking roads, and either walk or substitute for the soft gliding motion of a boat, the shaking, jolting, and pitching of the deplorable vehicles used in the celestial empire. Unhappy Sion, a series of torments, fatigues, and reproaches were about to begin again. And indeed, whoever had followed Kin Fo from province to province, from city to city, in this fantastic journey, would have had much to do. One day he would travel in a carriage, which was only a box, roughly fastened by big iron nails, to the axle-tree of two wheels, drawn by two restive mules, and covered by a linen canopy, which streams of rain and the sun's rays alike penetrated. Another day he might be seen stretched in a mule-chair, which is a sort of sentry-box suspended between two long bamboo poles, and subjected to such violent rolling and pitching, that a bark, under like circumstance, would have cracked in every part. Craig and Fry, on two asses, which rolled and pitched more than the chair, trotted along near the doors like two aides-de-camp. Soon, when rather rapid walking was necessary, went on foot, grumbling and cursing, and refreshing himself more than was necessary by frequent swallows of Kiaolang brandy. He, too, felt a peculiar rolling motion, but the cause was not due to the unevenness of the ground. In a word, the little party could not have been more tossed on a stormy sea. It was on horseback, and poor horses too, as one may believe, that Kin Fo and his companions made their entry into Si Gan Fao, the ancient capital of the Central Empire, where the emperors of the dynasty of Tang formerly resided. But to reach this distant province of Chen Si, to cross the interminable plains, arid and bare, how many dangers and how much fatigue there was to endure. The May sun, in a latitude which is that of southern Spain, was already unendurable, and caused a fine dust to form on roads that never have been blessed with paving. And so, on coming out of these yellowish whirlwinds which dinged the air with an unwholesome smoke, one was gray from head to foot. It was the country of the Las, a singular geological formation peculiar to the north of China, and which is neither earth nor rock, or rather it is a rock which has not yet had time to become solid. As for the dangers, 
they were only too real in a country where the police have an extraordinary fear of being stabbed by thieves. If in towns the Tapaos left the field free to the rogues. If in the heart of the city the inhabitants seldom ventured into the streets at night, then judge the degree of security that country roads afforded. Several times suspicious groups of men crossed the travelers' paths when they entered those deep, narrow defiles, hollowed out between the beds of the loss. But the sight of Craig Fry, with revolvers at their belts, had thus far intimidated the tramps on the highways. Yet the agents of the centenary, on many occasion, felt the most serious fear, if not for themselves, at least for the live million dollars they were escorting. Whether Kin Fo fell by Wang's poignard or a malefactor's knife, the result would be the same. It was the company's coffers which would receive the blow. Under these circumstances, Kin Fo, who was no less well-armed, was only too eager to defend himself, for he valued his life more than ever, and, as Craig Fry said, would kill himself to preserve it. It was not probable that any trace of the philosopher at Xinyan Fao, for a former Taiping, would not have thought of taking refuge there. It is a city whose strong walls blocked the way of the rebels in the time of the rebellion, and is occupied by a numerous garrison from Manchuria. Why should Wang come here unless he had a particular taste for archaeological curiosities, which are very numerous in this city, and a desire to plunge into the mysteries of epigrams, which the museum, called the Forest of Tablets, contains incalculable riches? Therefore, on the day after his arrival, Kin Fo, leaving this city, which is an important business center between Central Asia and Tibet, Mongolia, and China, continued on his way to the north, following Kiao Lin Xian, Sing Tong Xian, through the valley route of the Oi Ro, whose waters are tinged with the yellow hue of the loess which it has made its bed. The little party reached Roa Chiao which was the center of a terrible Mussulman insurrection in 1860. Kin Fo and his companions, after great fatigue, traveling sometimes in a boat and sometimes in a wagon, reached the fortress of Tiong Khan, which is situated at the confluence of the Oi Ro and the Ruang Ro. The Ruang Ro is the famous Yellow River. It descends directly from the north and crossing the eastern provinces, flows into the sea which bears its name, and is no more yellow than the Red Sea is red, the White Sea white, or the Black Sea black. Yes, it is a celebrated river of celestial origin, no doubt, since its color is that of the emperors, the sons of heaven, but is also China's sorrow, a title given it on account of its terrible overflows which have partially rendered the imperial canal impassable. At Tong Kwan, the travelers would have been safe even at night. It is no longer a commercial, but a military city, in which the Manchurian Tartars, who form the chief numbers of the Chinese army, live in fixed habitations, 
and not in camps. Possibly Kin Fo intended to stop here and rest a few days, or perhaps would have sought a good room, bed, and a table in a desirable hotel, which would not have pleased Fry Craig, and less likely Son. But this blundering fellow had the impudence to give to the custom-house officer his master's real instead of assumed name, which cost him a good inch of his braid. He forgot that it was no longer Kin Fo, but Ki Nan, whom he had the honor of serving. Kin Fo's anger was extreme, and it led him to leave the city at once. The name had produced its effect. The celebrated Kin Fo had arrived at Tong Kaun. People wished to see this unique man, whose sole and only desire was to become a centenarian. The terrified traveler, followed by his two guards and his valet, had just time to take his flight through the crowd of curious people who followed in his footsteps. On foot this time, on foot, he ordered, and ascended the shores of the Yellow River, proceeding thus till he and his companions stopped from exhaustion, where his incognito must secure him some hours of tranquillity. Sun, who was absolutely disconcerted, dared not say a word. He, in his turn, with the ridiculous little rat-tail yet remaining, was an object of the most disagreeable ridicule. The boys ran after him, mocking him and calling him names, so he too was in a great hurry to arrive. But where, since his master, as Mr. Bidulph said, expected to keep on the move, and was doing so? This time there were no horses asses, wagons, or chairs in this modest town, twenty leagues from Tiong Kaon, where Kin Fo sought refuge. There was no prospect but to remain here, or continue on foot. This was not likely to inspire good humor in the pupil of the philosopher Wang, and he showed little philosophy on this occasion. He accused everyone, with only himself to blame. Ah! how he sighed for the time when he had nothing to do but live. If to appreciate happiness it was necessary to know enmity trouble and torments, as Wang used to say, he had plenty of them now, and some to spare. And yet, in running around the country, he met on the way worthy people without a sou, who nevertheless were happy. He was able to observe these varied forms of happiness, which cheerfully performed labor, brings. Here were laborers bending over their plowing, and there workmen singing as they handled their tools. Was it not precisely to this absence of labor that Kin Fo owed the absence of desires, and consequently the lack of happiness here below? Ah, the lesson was complete, he believed so, at least. No, friend, Kin Fo, it was not. After searching thoroughly in the village, and knocking at every door, Craig and Fry finally discovered only one vehicle, and that it would only carry one person, and graver still, that the propelling power of said vehicle was wanting. It was a wheelbarrow, Pascal's wheelbarrow, and perhaps invented before his time by those ancient inventors of powder the art of writing, the compass, and kites. In China, 
the wheel of this convenience, which is rather broad in diameter, is placed not at the end of the shafts, but in the middle, and moves across the body of the wheelbarrow, like the central wheel in some steamboats. The body is then divided into two parts, following its axis, in one of which the traveler can stretch himself out, and in the other stow his baggage. The propelling power is, and can be only a man, who pushes it before him instead of dragging it after him, and is therefore behind the traveler, whose view he does not obstruct, as does the driver of an English cab. When the wind is favorable, that is, when it blows from behind, the man joins to his efforts this natural force, which costs him nothing, by setting a mast in the fore part of the vehicle, and raising a square sail, so that when the breeze is strong, instead of pushing the wheelbarrow, it is the latter which draws him along, often faster than he wishes. The vehicle was purchased with all its accessories, and Kin Fo took his place in it. The wind was fresh, and the sail was raised. "'Come, Sion,' said he. Sion began quite naturally to stretch himself out in the second compartment of the wheelbarrow. "'Into the shafts!' cried Kin Fo in a certain tone, which admitted of no reply. "'Master, what I—I—' exclaimed the terrified Sion, whose limbs shook like those of a foundered horse. "'Don't blame any one but yourself, your tongue, and your own foolishness.' "'Come, Sion,' cried Fry Craig. "'Into the shafts,' repeated Kin Fu, looking at what pigtail remained to the unhappy valet. "'Into the shafts, animal, and mind you, do not jolt me, or—' Kin Fo's first and middle finger of the right hand, brought together after the manner of scissors, so well completed his thought, that Sion passed the reins around his shoulders— and seized the shafts with both hands. Fry Craig placed themselves on both sides of the wheelbarrow, and with the aid of the breeze the little band moved off at a gentle trot. We must renounce any attempt to describe Sion's moot powerless rage when he had passed into the place of a horse, and yet Craig and Fry often consented to relieve him, very fortunately the south wind came to their aid, and performed three-quarters of the work. The wheelbarrow was well balanced by the position of the central wheel, and the work of the man in the shafts became like that of a steersman at the helm of a ship. He had only to maintain himself in the right direction. And in this equipage Kin Fo might have been seen traveling through the western provinces of China, walking when he felt the need of stretching his limbs, and being trundled in the wheelbarrow when he needed rest. Thus Kin Fo, having avoided Huan Fo and Ka Fong, ascended the banks of the celebrated Imperial Canal, which, not quite twenty years ago, before the Yellow River had resumed its course through its former bed, formed a beautiful navigable route from Sochou, the tea country, as far as Peking, a distance of about a hundred leagues. He thus crossed Tsinan and Hokin, and went through the province of Pichili, where is situated Peking, the quadruple capital of the Celestial Empire. Thus also he passed Tianxing, 
a large city of 400,000 inhabitants, which is protected by a fortified wall and two forts, whose large port, formed by the junction of the Pei Ho and the Imperial Canal, makes, by importing cotton goods from Manchester, woolen goods, copper, iron, German matches, sandalwood, etc., and by exporting jujubes, water lily leaves, and tobacco from Tartary, etc., a sum amounting to seventy millions. But Kin Fo did not once think of visiting the celebrated pagoda of infertile torments, in this curious Tian Sing. He did not pass through the entertaining streets of lanterns and old clothes in the eastern suburb, nor breakfast at the restaurant of Harmony and Friendship, kept by the Musselman Liu Lao Ki, whose wines are famous, whatever Mahomet may think of them, nor leave his big red card, for good reasons, at the palace of Li Chong Tang, the viceroy of the province since 1870, a member of the Privy Council, and also of the Council of the Empire, and who bears with the yellow jacket the title of Fei Chi Tiao Pao, no Kin Fo, constantly being trundled in the wheelbarrow, and Sion, constantly trundling him, crossed the wharves where mountains of sandbags were piled. They passed the outskirts of the city, the English and the American concessions, the race grounds, the country covered with sorghum, barley, sesame, vineyards, kitchen gardens, rich in vegetables and fruits, and plains, whence depart by the million, hares, partridges, and quail, which are chased by the falcon, the merlin, and the hobby. All four followed for twenty-four leagues the paved road which leads to Pekin, between trees of various essences and the tall reeds of the river, and thus arrived safe and sound at Tong Chow. Kin Fo, still being valued at two hundred thousand dollars, Craig Fry sound as at the beginning of the journey, and Sion out of breath, limping and foundered in both legs, and having only three inches of cue left on top of his cranium. It was now the 19th of June. The time granted Wang would expire in a week. Where was Wang? End of chapter 12 Recording by Kirby Bonds